Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you again this morning in worship of our never-changing God. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Kelton. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. We continue in our service this morning now from, from hearing God word, God, from God's Word preached. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to the 32nd chapter of Genesis. Genesis 32. This morning we're going to be in all of chapters 32 and 33 from Jacob to Israel. You know, all, all things change, that is, except God. All things undergo change. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. The seasons, the price of gas, technology, our relationships, our bodies, none stay the same. Have you heard Mount Everest is now two feet taller thanks to the constant shifting of tectonic plates? Even our planet is changing. And of course, not all change is is positive. Spring might be a welcome change, but the gas prices are not. I, I wonder, how have you experienced change in your life recently? How have, have you changed? I am, I'm certain that change has occurred for you. But the question is, with that, has growth come? How has those change those changes caused you to grow even when changes in our life are unwelcome like the the loss of a loved one a sickness a, a difficulty in a new opportunity you have an opportunity either to grow for the better or not change is inevitable growth is optional so has that change produced growth in you christian into the maturity of Christ, our head. Our passage this morning in the continued story of of Jacob calls on us to consider our growth in maturity. The life of Jacob has been filled with change, but has it resulted in growth? Last week we studied Jacob leaving Haran with his, his wives, children, and flocks. God has protected him. This morning, maybe the biggest change we'll see in Jacob is that he has a new name, Israel. But as we read, we will see other changes in Jacob. So so as we read this morning, have this question in mind. How else has Jacob changed? What evidence do you notice in the text this morning that the Jacob who left his father's house so many years ago is not the same man who is returning? My preaching is also always changing, so today we are going to read the passage in full here at the start, all 52 verses of the two chapters at once. To help you, maybe if you have a pen, jot down what you notice in your your congregational worship guide, how has Jacob changed? If you haven't been here for our previous sermon series, maybe, maybe you can't notice exactly how Jacob has changed. Maybe just notice how is God active in Jacob's life? What is God doing here in this episode of his life? Read with me Genesis 32, starting in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell you, tell my lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, 
O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel for for saying, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him and he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah and with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, These the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are are care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. 
But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan, Aram, and he, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he, there he erected an altar and called it Elo, Eloe Israel. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is precious to us. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us this morning in this, this story of Jacob, of your grace to him. And your grace not in vain, a grace that has changed this man from the deceiver to a man who trusts in you. Lord, a man chosen by your grace, Lord, to strive with you. A man marked now by repentance. Father, we pray as we read your word this morning that that we would see evidence of this grace in our lives. And Lord, if not, that you would produce this change in us by your grace. We pray for Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, Jacob is now safely returned to the land of his father in, in Canaan. But I wonder, as we read this morning, what changes did you notice in Jacob? How was God active in his life in this episode? Our big idea this morning, the the one thought to orient all our other thoughts is, is this. God's grace produces repentance and gradual but real growth. This is the evidence that we see in Jacob's life. God's grace producing repentance and gradual but real growth. Jacob has lived his life in the grip of relentless grace, chosen at first by grace, kept by grace, and now clearly changed by grace. And this is the story of every Christian too, chosen by grace, kept by grace, and changed by grace. God's grace produces repentance and gradual but real growth. We're going to have three points this morning. Three points, God's grace produces trust. That's what we see in the first part of chapter 32, verses 1 through 21. God's grace also produces effort, that in the second half of chapter 32. And finally, God's grace produces repentance, that in chapter 33. God's grace produces trust. God's grace produces effort. And finally, God's grace produces repentance. My, my hope for us this morning, brothers and sisters, as we go, that we will be encouraged to see that God's grace has produced these things in our lives. That God's grace has changed you, too. Or, this morning, if not, to see this change happen in you now, even today, by God's grace. So let's go back to the start. In the first verse of chapter 32, in our first point this morning, God's grace produces trust. God's grace produces trust in verses 1 through 21. I think one of the things that that you might have noticed in these first verses is Jacob doing something that we have no record of him ever doing before. But we'll get there in a moment. First things first. Jacob is on his journey from Haran back to his home with his wives, his children, and flocks because he is kept by God's grace God has been present with Jacob these 20 years and more to lead, to overrule, to listen, to supply, and to protect. What we've seen in our study of Jacob. But now on his way home, the first thing he sees in chapter 32 is a reminder of how his journey started. Verse 1, as Jacob went on his way, what did he see? Angels. The angels of God met him. They don't do anything specifically, do they? We just learned that they met him. In verse 2, he sees them, so he gives a name to this location, names the spot two camps, probably after his own camp and the camp of these these angels. I think this is specifically a callback to Genesis 28, how his journey began, where God reveals to him, if you'll remember, the stairway to heaven. 
right? A stairway between heaven and earth filled with angelic activity up and down. When we studied that, we, we saw that it was God's gracious revelation that God was directing all the affairs of his life, sending his angelic spirits to minister to all his needs at his direction, even at the darkest moment of his life. When he felt alone in the wilderness, God was with him and would be with him through it all. The only two times this specific phrase shows up, the angels of God is here and back in Genesis 28. I think the wrong conclusion to make is that that the angels were only with him at these two times. No, I think this is a reminder that this stairway followed him the whole 20 years. God has been with him through it all. This is God's gracious reminder of that truth, allowing Jacob another glimpse of the invisible reality that is true at all times. What is normally, though, invisible. Angels are real. And they really do God's bidding on behalf of his saints. It raises the question, though, I think, how should we relate to to angels? I think it's instructive to note in the life of Jacob, Jacob doesn't talk much about angels, does he? Whenever he has opportunity, even in our text this morning, to explain what's been going on, or when he prays, he never references angels. No, he always gives credit to God. This is what God did. Yes, angels are his agent, but credit goes to God. That's not to say it's wrong for us as Christians to talk about angels. For example, when a tragic accident is miraculously averted to say that God's angels protected us. They do that. But But even Jacob, who had the privilege of seeing angels was not tempted to give credit to angels. He gave credit to God. And when he prayed, he didn't ask for angels to do something. He asked for God to do something. In fact, angels are so closely associated with God that their activities in our lives can be described as God's activities, as we'll see later in the story when Jacob wrestles with an angel. How should we relate to angels? Well, Christians should acknowledge that there is a whole realm of spiritual angels. But we don't pray to them or give credit to angels. They are merely servants. Ultimately, all our credit goes to God. But there is more to note here. That's just the first two verses. Just as God sent his angels, his messengers to Jacob... Jacob also sends out messengers to his brother Esau in Seir. Remember Esau, it's been a while since we've seen him. The twin, older brother of Jacob, who Jacob stole the birthright and blessing from. The brother who last we knew was seething in anger and comforted himself by planning on killing his brother. Well, Jacob decides to send a message to Esau. In verse 4, he intends to explain where he's been this whole time, how he's fared in that land, and that he desires to find favor in his brother's sight. He wants to be reconciled with his brother. Reconciliation is a, a change in relationship, it's a, a restoration where there has been enmity, where reconciliation brings, brings harmony. So he sends these messengers, but, but when they return, they don't bring a reply from Esau, only a report of what Esau is doing in verse 6. He is coming to meet you. Oh, and by the way, he's bringing 400 men. He's bringing an army with him. Jacob is understandably, in verse 7, greatly afraid, it says, and distressed. For all he knows, Esau still intends to murder him, and with him, his whole family. So he makes plans there in verse 7. He, he splits his camp in two to present two targets to Esau. That way, as one is attacked, the other can flee. At least some will be saved. 
I think the most amazing thing about this narrative is, is quite subtle. Edom, the, the land of Esau, mentioned in verse 3, is to the south of the promised land. It's, it's outside of Canaan where he is going. And frankly, out of the way for Jacob. Haran is in the north. Where he's going is in the north. Esau's in the south. Whichever path he took, he is choosing to go to Esau. Even when he divides his camp, his intention is not to escape Esau. He is still choosing for confrontation with Esau. He could have easily headed further north and avoided the confrontation completely. Or we don't know exactly the path he took. He could have easily never sent the messengers in the first place. What we see clearly here is going to Esau was not a geographic necessity. Esau did not block his path into Canaan. No, I think we must conclude that it is a spiritual necessity. This is evidence of the change in Jacob by grace. He understands what he must do. That he must be reconciled with his brother. Whatever the cost to himself and family. Yes, he is is frightened. Again, it says he is greatly afraid and distressed. But still, he could not leave his sins with his brother unresolved. Church, I think this is the first evidence we have of not just change, but growth in Jacob. He is not fleeing danger, but meeting it head on. And this is also the true sign of God's grace in all believers. And an internal constraint to reconcile with those that we have hurt. An ability to trust God to, as we do whatever is right, no matter the cost. And this springs not from some external constraint, what is demanded of us. It springs from a deep experience of God's grace. Because God has dealt graciously with Jacob, despite all the ways that he has not deserved it, he has been changed. He has grown to desire restored relationships, to live in harmony with all, so far as it depends on him. Don't miss the radical display of growth by grace we have in Jacob here. And let me be candid for a minute. This is more than just saying Christians should be willing to be reconciled with others. Even the world can do that. No, this is far more radical. This demonstrates to truly know God's grace is to become so devoted to reconciliation that when we've committed wrong, we go out of our way to pursue reconciliation, even at great personal cost. This is exactly what Jesus expects of his disciples, what he taught us in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. When Jesus teaches on the kingdom of heaven, what citizens of his kingdom must be like, he teaches them to prize reconciliation. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he teaches, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation is more important even than religious duty. I take this literally. If, if you've sinned against someone and have not reconciled with them, you have my encouragement to get up now to leave and pursue reconciliation with them. It makes us wonder, what could produce such a radical commitment to reconciliation? What could make someone so devoted to something so costly? It's grace. It's the message of grace in the gospel. It's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you. It is the fact that despite the great cost, God went out of His way to be reconciled to you. 
You know, he alone has the right to just let things go as they are, to head to the north and leave us be. It would have been just of him to leave us to suffer his eternal wrath, separated from God. But to our everlasting joy, God instead loved us and sent more than just messengers committed to the display of the glory of his grace. No, by the Father's plan, he sent his Son, a Son who suffered and died a cruel death on a Roman cross, dying as a sacrifice in our place, dying the death that we deserve as judgment for our sins, so that now any who would confess and turn away from their sins and trust in God will be forgiven all as an unmerited gift of God's grace. And all those saved by that grace are changed by that grace, to be like that grace, to be a peacemaker like our God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, like their father. Has God's grace so radically captured your heart that you seek reconciliation with others like this, then you've been changed by grace. You are a Christian. But that's not the only change we see in Jacob here. I referred to it earlier, but but what do we see Jacob doing here that we have no other record of him doing before? Praying. He prays. Chapter 32, verses 9 through 12 is the longest prayer recorded in Genesis. It's also a a model prayer for us. He he begins by acknowledging in verse 9 who he addresses in prayer. The God of my father, Abraham, my father, Isaac, the one who spoke to me. Next, he, he quotes God's words back to him. The command to return to your country. He goes on, third, to confess his unworthiness. Unworthy, he says, of the least, of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness to him. God will not hear and act because Jacob deserves it. But, But even here, he acknowledges it's purely by grace. He is not worthy. Fourth, he presents his request. Deliver me, in verse 11, from the hand of my brother. And finally, Reasons why. If you do not, how can we be as numerous as the sands of the sea? We will be wiped out. Address, quote, confess, request, and purpose. That's, that's a good outline. You can write those down and use it to shape your prayers. Address, quote, confess, request, and purpose. You know, I, I think this prayer is helpful for us interpreting all of what Jacob does in this, this account. Some suggest that his splitting of the camp in verse 7 is evidence that Jacob is the same old planner and schemer. You know, Jacob goes on to make very elaborate plans after this prayer in in verses 13 through 21. He prepares a, a present to appease Esau, according to verse 20. Perhaps because of this he will accept me. He selects nine groups of animals, 550 in total, and and puts them each with a servant. And for dramatic uh, uh, effect, he sends them off one by one and puts a gap between them, telling each to offer the gift to, to my Lord Esau and says that Jacob is still coming behind them. He himself will follow later. How should we interpret these plans? Are, are they the schemes of a deceiver trusting his work rather than God's word? Maybe. That has been his modus operandi. But I I think we should interpret his actions in light of the prayer. His his prayer reveals his heart, where he is trusting. And his prayer expressed trust and deliverance comes from God, not his own actions. His, His trust for deliverance will come because of God's word to him, not his own works and plans. This is the the prayer of Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, what we sang of earlier. 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. It's as he said, in his word I hope. Not my plans, not my actions, but yours. You know that, right? That the the promises of God and our praying are not alternatives to planning. You don't pick one or the other. I can either make wise plans or pray and trust God's promises. No, that's a, a false dichotomy. God has ordered you to do both. Pray, trusting his promises, and plan. Proverbs 16.3 Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. What we must understand is what Jacob expresses in this prayer. It is God's plans that are decisive, not ours. We work with the best laid plans according to our wisdom and commit it to God in prayer. So brothers and sisters, when you plan your day, what to do at work, what to do with the kids, what to do around the house. Commit it to God in prayer and know that his plan will succeed. Your plan might fail or be interrupted. Truly, frankly, they're often vain plans and and foolish. But God's plans will never fail. A few verses later in, in Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. I'll grant, maybe, maybe, maybe Jacob is trusting in his own plans here. But even if, let's be clear, for us, it is not plans that are the problem. It is the object of our trust. In your plans, what are you relying on? Your cunning? Pay attention to your anxieties. When your plans fail, What do your anxieties reveal about what you were trusting? Your plans or God's power? Again, saints, this this does not mean that you don't make plans. Rather, in all your plans, trust the Lord. It may have taken Jacob years, but God's relentless grace has left its mark on him. God's grace has produced trust and a trust that acts in prayer, and in plans. And we'll, we'll see this even more in our next verses. Starting in verse 22, in our second point, God's grace produces effort. God's grace produces effort. After his, his plans, his prayers, he, he puts them into motion. He, he sends his two wives, his two servants, and all his children across the stream. And at nightfall, he's, he's left alone, almost like we found him as he fled from Canaan at first. Frankly, verse 24 and the scene that follows is, is utterly unique in salvation history. We have no other interaction like this in the Bible. And put yourself in Jacob's shoes for a moment. Can you imagine, alone at night in the wilderness, and out of nowhere, you're struck from behind. An unidentified man has attacked you. Maybe this is Esau. He's snuck into your camp, found you, and attacked. I'm I'm surprised at how casual Moses is in verse 24. And a man wrestled him with him until breaking of the day. That's likely six or seven hours of wrestling when he should be sleeping. Likely exhausted to the bone after just one hour. No opportunity for rest. Sweat dripping down, hair and beard. Labored, breathing, gouging, pulling, punching, bruised and beaten. And of course, all in the darkness of night, Jacob unable to tell who it is that is attacking him. Finally, when the unnamed assailant sees that he does not prevail against Jacob, he simply touched his hip socket, and it was put out of joint. Clearly, this man could have ended the brawl five hours earlier, at any moment prior. He has an unnatural power. 
Well, what are we to make of all this? Who is this man? Why is he attacking Jacob in the middle of the night? Well, Hosea 12, verses 3 through 5, speak of Jacob's life and reference this wrestling match. It reads, In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there spoke God spoke with us. Notice Hosea says that he strove not only with man, his, his brother, but with God, and in the next line, with an angel. So, so which is it? Is it God or is it angel? Well, briefly, I think it's an angel. I do think God appears to men. We have that account in Genesis 18 of, of God appearing to Abraham. But not here. I think this is an angel. Either way, even if it is an angel, angels are so identified with God speaking and acting on his behalf, it's as if it was God. But, but why this wrestling? Why not just appear to him again in a dream and speak to him? There are so few words exchanged, especially considering the number of hours. Well, there are many unanswered questions in this brief narrative. It is clear to me, however, that the picture of Jacob's struggle with God here is meant to epitomize the whole of Jacob's narrative. Jacob has been struggling even before his birth in the womb with his brother. He has since then struggled with his father, with his brother, with his father-in-law, with his wives, in all of that seeking blessing from them. He wanted to be first out of the womb. He did what he needed to in order to get the blessing. He struggled with his father's father-in-law and his sons. The wrestling here, I think, is a parable of his entire life. And I, I think the Lord intends to teach jo Jacob in all this that his business is with God, not with all these other assailants. God himself is where he would find his blessing, not from these other adversaries. And this is exactly the change that we see in Jacob in these verses. At some point, he recognizes the divine nature of this challenger and asks him for a blessing. The Hosea 12 told us that he wept and sought his favor. He truly now is seeking blessing in the only place that it can be found, from God. And he will not take no for an answer. Verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You know, some misunderstand grace and think that grace leads to complacency. Why do anything if, if simply get, I'll get what I don't earn? Jacob could have just laid down and let the angel beat him. Well, look to Jacob. Grace does not make us complacent. Grace makes us strive for blessing from God. Grace does not undercut our effort, but fuels it. Jacob knows he doesn't deserve any blessings from God and isn't winning by his striving. No, the, the angel wins simply with a touch. But God is pleased with his striving. And in verse 29, there he blessed him. This is not the reward for the victor, but the grace of God to the defeated. Well, we have more questions to ask. Why ask his name? Why does the angel ask Jacob his name? Was the angel not sure in the darkness who he had found in the darkness? It, it might be the wrong one. No, he was asking for a confession. Do you remember what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. One who supplants. The angel, who are you, Jacob? I am rightly called deceiver, for I have cheated my brother twice. But God gives him a new name, a new identity. No longer deceiver, but now Israel. He strives with God. By God's grace, Jacob no longer seeks for blessing by his own power, but from God. He strives with 
God. And he has the permanent limp to prove it. You know, this, this wrestling match is in one sense utterly unique. I expect none of us will ever wrestle with an angel. But in another sense, it is the experience of everyone who has been captured by grace. We must all learn in one way or another to seek our blessings from God. We must learn to strive after it, to, to earnestly seek His face and to know Him. Grace produces effort. So, so Christian, has grace produced this fruit in your life? Has grace taught you to seek blessings from God alone? As we think of our own wrestling and striving, we are prone to seek for blessing in all the wrong places, hoping marriage or positions or possessions will bring blessing in our life. So we wrestle for them. But true favor, true protection, lasting benefit can never be found in these things, as good as they might be, gifts from his hand. Blessings only come from God, and it is besought from him with all your strength. God's grace produces effort. Seek all that you need in God alone. Finally, brothers and sisters, we see in the life of Jacob that God's grace produces repentance. Let's turn to our our third point, drawing from chapter 33. God's grace produces repentance. The next morning, worn out from his exhausting encounter with God, leaving with a limp, Esau has arrived with 400 men. Jacob still doesn't know their intentions, but we see no more mention of fear from Jacob. He has striven with God and lived. What is there to be afraid of? He splits up his wives and children, but now, notice, he is in the front. In verse 3, he himself went on before them. The reverse of his previous plan. He bows seven times as he approaches Esau. This is the normal, proper act of respect of a subject to his Lord. And to our wonder and delight, Esau greets Jacob with joy. In verse 4, running to embrace him with kisses and weeping. God has miraculously answered his prayer. Jacob asked in in 32.11, Deliver me from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. And God has heard and answered. All of his plans and preparation would have been for nothing if God had not heard and answered. And it is exactly as Jacob had confessed in his prayer. Jacob is unworthy of all the least of the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness. This included. But by God's grace, the grace that reigns over Jacob... As it does for you too, Christian, God hears and gives more of his steadfast love and faithfulness, despite his unworthiness. I think we see Jacob's humble heart in his prayer, but also here before Esau. Did you notice it in in verse 11? The present that he has prepared for him is more than just a gift to assuage anger, it is the fruit of repentance in restitution. He calls the gift there in verse 11, my blessing, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. This is the same word for what Jacob has stolen from Esau. Described in Genesis 27, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Surely, when Jacob offers to Esau the blessing, he is not invalidating Isaac's blessing of him. Remember, despite the wicked deceit, it is God's sovereign choice that the older Esau served the younger Jacob. But I think we should see in Jacob's action here restitution from the deceitful theft. He understands that, that Esau, his brother, has suffered because of his sin. And he desires to make amends through this gift of 550 animals. 
Jacob prevails on Esau. In verse 11, he takes the gift. It's not clear when Esau's heart was changed, but now, in verse 15, Esau offers some of his 500 men to protect Jacob's family and flocks on their journey. So Jacob and Esau depart in peace. And finally, in verse 18, Jacob returns to the promised land at last, safely, it says, to Shechem, where it is in the land of his father. The grip of God's relentless grace has brought Jacob safely back, fulfilling all that God has promised before he left. And it is only now that he builds an altar in verse 20 and offers his gift to his God after first being reconciled to his brother, as Jesus himself taught. God's grace produces repentance. Do you see this change, this growth in Jacob by God's grace? Repentance, simply defined, is, is simply a change of mind. It's, it's a reversal from one orientation to another. Jacob no longer taking by deception, but giving in sincerity. The repentant aren't, aren't sinless, but the repentant take God's side against hated sin, not sin's side against a hated God. If you're here this morning and, and have not experienced this kind of change of repentance, let me be clear. God does not require you to clean up before coming to him. In fact, you cannot. You need to come to him to be cleansed, to receive forgiveness. And this is precisely what God offers you, to be perfect in his sight, not by what you do, but what he has done for you. Your repentance will never be enough. Your repentance does not earn your salvation. No, you must recognize that it is all a gift of grace for sinners. And this grace in your life produces the true Christian's radical commitment to reconciliation. So much so that it includes a commitment to make restitution. Like Jacob, to restore what was lost and damaged by your sin. To redress wrongs wherever possible. So, have you slandered a brother? Repentance is not just confessing to that brother, but going back to those you've slandered with and repairing the name you've slandered. Restitution means rebuilding Relationships where your sin has dismantled. It means giving back what you have taken. Sometimes restitution is not possible. We leave it to God to make right what we cannot. When I was saved by God's grace, I, I wrote letters to some of the people I had most grievously sinned against in my life. Full restitution was impossible, but I hoped that by seeking their forgiveness in these letters, I could, I could help them begin to heal from what I had done against them. God's grace produces repentance committed to righting what we have wronged. You know, I can't help but think of Charles Dickens' novel, The Christmas Carol. After Ebenezer Scrooge's radical transformation, he meets, he meets the man who had come to him looking for charitable donations the day before. Do you know this scene? Dickens writes, It sent a pang across Scrooge's heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met. But he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. My dear sir, said Scrooge, quickening his pace and taking the old gentleman by his hands, how do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Yes, said Scrooge. That is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness? Here Scrooge whispered in his ear. Lord, bless me, cried the gentleman, as if his breath were taken away. My dear Scrooge, you are you serious? If you please, said Scrooge, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it. 
I assure you, Christians need Scrooge-like strength to take the path that lay before them, to seek pardon from those we've offended, and to make our past wrongs right. Many back payments are included, not earned, but given by grace because it has been lavished on us. Because all the back payments because of our sin have been paid by God himself in the blood of Jesus. And any who have received so freely give gladly all by God's grace. Change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Jacob's life is evidence that in all the changes, God's grace produces radical, supernatural growth. God's grace produces trust, independent prayer, and wise planning. God's grace produces effort, striving after blessings only where it can be found in God. And God's grace produces repentance a commitment to make restitution for past wrongs. Friends, His grace is sufficient. Grow in that grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Unmerited favor and blessing from the only place where true blessing is found, flowing from your right hand. Our Father, we pray that your grace would produce this radical change in our life. That we would give evidence in our dependent prayer and wise planning. In our striving after, by effort from your hand, for blessings from you. And Lord, in our lives a commitment so radical to reconciliation that we would make restitution for past wrongs even at great personal cost. All flowing, Father, from your work to be reconciled to us. Lord, we pray this all in this precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.